So I will be reading for you and preaching for you out of Hebrews chapter 4. And I will be reading verse 9 through the end of the chapter. Hear now the word of God. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and is exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that there is the hope of a final and complete Sabbath rest ahead. We thank you, Father, that the work that Jesus Christ has done is finished. And that even now, as we still live here waiting for that final rest, we can rest in that final work. Father, we thank you for this hope, and we pray that you will help us to hold fast this confession of truth, knowing that Jesus has done it all. Help us, Father, to understand and believe this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As we finish up this chapter, again, I want to remind us of the themes that we see going through this portion of Hebrews that are still echoing from chapter 3 that we are to consider Jesus Christ and to remember that he is the faithful son over God's house and that we are his house and that our confidence and boasting is alone in him. When we think about what our calling is as Christians to follow Jesus, it would be silly for us to remove Jesus. I read an article recently talking about how it is so easy in our practice in Christian faith to get so called up in the things that we are called to do that we make Jesus absent from it, that it becomes a moral practice for us, or even that the gospel, and if you can imagine this, you might not think this off of the surface, but if you think very closely about it, even the practicing and preaching of the gospel can be removed of Jesus Christ, or at least we attempt to move move Jesus Christ from it, by how we think about it and we portray it. We will begin to think of the gospel as something as giving people an out for their sin or that we'd be kind to people, that we'd be gracious to people, that we'd be humble to people, but that we forget 
that it is Jesus that accomplished the work. It is only in him that we are confident. We can make the gospel about ourselves. That we're like, hey, I'm very humble. I know I'm a sinner. And I know I need to be nice to other people and gracious to other people. Well, that's just another religion in of itself if you have it with nothing but Jesus. It's not possible. It's not possible to show grace to other people. It's not possible to feel comfortable that we can be those who can even recognize that we are sinners. In fact, if we were preaching the gospel without Jesus, when we say, yeah, we all make mistakes, we all sin, we're all bad, we're like, oh no, we're all bad. (laughs) We're all with sin. We are doomed. We are hopeless. And there'd be no way to give grace to other people because we're like, yeah, you are a sinner. You are wicked and you have sinned against me and I want it back. I want my pound of flesh. No, but because of Jesus Christ, we can have hope that we can come to him and acknowledge our sinfulness and we can show grace and patience to other people. We can listen to what Caleb said in Numbers when he said, let us go up at once and occupy it for we are well able to overcome it because he recognized that God is the one who overcomes it. He was not confident in himself. He was not boasting in himself. He was boasting in the Lord. And if we remember the first part of this chapter that we are to first let us fear. Today we get to talk about a different let us. We get to hear, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. And then also let us hold fast our confession. But as we go into that work of faith, that act of faith, that walking forward toward the Lord, we must first start with let us fear. That is the call of the gospel, to repent and to believe So we read the first part of chapter 4 and remember what Israel had done by not trusting in the Lord and by disobeying the Lord, by not trusting in him, but instead trusting in themselves. When we sin without repentance, we are trusting in ourselves. We assume that whatever actions and work that we're doing is okay to continue in. It is trusting in our works. It's trusting in our desires instead of the Lord. So for us to be those who want to enter into his rest, we must believe in his rest. For them, it was a land that promised rest that was only symbolic, ultimately, of eternal rest. For us, we now have Jesus Christ and we celebrate today the very risen Lord who is our ultimate rest. He was the promise. He is the promise. And he continues to be the promise for us. There's still a Sabbath celebration ahead. That Sabbath means to keep, to hold, and to celebrate while we cease from holding on to ourselves, but we enter into the confidence of the Lord. So today we go and we start here remembering that for whoever entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did his. We see that in the first part of chapter 4, that there were two reasons why they did not enter into rest, that part of them did not enter into rest in Israel. One was unbelief, and the other was disobedience. So what do you think would be the key for us to enter into the rest of the Lord, that what Jesus has accomplished, that we're celebrating today, as we think about the fact, and we're going around and we're telling people, he is risen, what does it matter? 
if we do not actually have some hope of resurrection ourselves. So how do we enter into that? So we look at the contrast of what Israel did. What is, what, what is it that we should do? It's a question for you all. Trust and obey. Trust and obey. To believe. To follow. I know that whenever, there's a certain times that I can come into the house at home and I could go into the home and I could say, family, let's all gather. And automatically they start asking questions because it can go in two different directions. It can be, okay, we're in trouble or he has, he's getting ready to announce something great. Like we're going to go on a trip or something good. And so they're like looking at me, you know, and, they're, and they start, if they don't, if they're asking me questions, they're looking, what kind of expression does he have on his face? Where is this going to go? Because they don't know if they should run or if they should gather or from outside. And I come in and a lot of times I'll do this when it's night outside and I'll come inside and I'll say, Hey everybody, let's go outside. Now, typically that they know that there is a trajectory, typically, that if it's dark outside and if it's a pretty night, that I want to show them something. I've never said, let's go outside. I'm going to line you all up out behind the woodshed. <laughs> I haven't had to do it that way. So they typically are very happy to follow me. They will listen to my words. Where do we need to go? What do we need to do? What are you going to show me? Here we have... The same call for us to believe in God's word, to trust him, but to also follow him. It's one thing to believe that what is being said is a good thing, but it's another thing to enter into the experience of that good thing. Now, granted, whenever I tell my family that we're going on vacation, they're usually their first question is how far away it is. We're planning on going on a trip in May and, and we're wanting to know how long is it going to be to go to this place that we're going to go to because they know that it can be challenging to get there if the longer the trip is. And that's the challenging thing for us is that here we have this call in verse 11 to let us therefore strive to enter that rest. It's a very interesting command that we are to be striving. When we think about the word striving, we are usually thinking about wrestling or a work, right? A fight, something that's difficult. You don't typically say, oh, they were enjoying their strife. <laughs> it's not usually portrayed in a positive manner. And here, after we've been given this promise of rest, and we, especially like the Hebrews, were given the answer to all of the call to rest, which is Jesus Christ. We are to strive to enter into that. It's going to require us getting up and following God. That we have been told that those who enter into God's rest has to rest from their works by striving to enter that rest. And that can be kind of challenging to understand, but if you think about what I have just given you and that analogy with my kids, they could just sit there and I say, hey, come outside. I want to show you all something really great. And they go, okay, good. And they just sit there. <laughs> and I go on out there and I'm standing out there by myself. They don't get to enjoy the very calling of what I've been given them if they do not trust and they do not obey. They do not follow. So we are too. We have to strive to enter that rest. And he gives us how that is to happen. We see here in verse 10, to let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. You don't want to be sitting on the couch. 
You want to follow the calling of God. Well, what is that calling? Well, it's the word of God. Verse 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him of whom we must give an account. How do we do this? We trust his word. He has given us his word. He gave the words to Israel about the promised land in the covenant that he explained. He didn't give it fully an understanding that we understand in Christ now. Therefore, we should even go further. That's what the whole argument of Hebrews is, is that they had this. We have something better. They have this. We have the fulfillment of this. They have this warning. We should have even a greater warning because we have a greater understanding of that hope. There may be somebody upstairs in the attic when I come in and say, hey, let's go outside. And they go, was that dad? Did he say something? I heard something about going outside. What, what, what was going on? I'm not clear. And then there's other people who are sitting right there in the living room when I come in. And they heard very loud and clear. And they know exactly what to do and where to go. We are like those right there. We're not like Israel who's up in the attic. It only has a little bit of an understanding of what to do and where to go and what to hope in. We have the fulfillment of that. In Jesus Christ, in his word. So they had the word. We had the word here when the Hebrews was given out. And we have the word continuing in the proclamation of the truth today. What is it this word is? One, we see that it is living and active. It is a living and active word. It's not some antique. It's not some old idea that once was something really special. When we think about anything that we see in the scriptures... We should understand that the reality of what is being shown there in these tremendous stories from the parting of the Red Sea to lives being brought forth from the dead to armies being destroyed, it is still alive and active today. That reality still persists. Occasionally, we get to see that in a broader form when we see things being done throughout the world and we see the church alive and well. But at moments, God gives us glimpses of a very potency of that. And here we are here each day to strive to put our minds toward entering into that rest. I know that Sunday mornings can be very difficult. And it's encouraging to me that Hebrews has given me this command with an understanding of how difficult it can be to strive to make it to church. So that we can strive to enter into that hope, into that rest. The Lord made it a little easier for us today by having a nice sunny and beautiful day. But I remember the last couple of Easter Sundays have been a little gray or a little cold. And it's a little harder to get up when our bodies don't feel as connected to it. I was concerned about that too. I went to bed really sore yesterday. I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to have to get up. I don't don't know if I want to be there. I think think Mahrus can handle this. Maybe I can just throw in the flag. But thankfully, the Lord gave me good rest, and I'm here with you all today. But this word is living and active. It's true. We can have power from it. We strive to go to this word to be made alive, to have it change our lives. It will transform. Number two, it, is, it has two-edged sharpness. We know that this is a symbol that the Lord is very clear on about the word of God, that it cuts both ways, and it cuts deep. Number three, it goes to the soul, spirit, thoughts, and heart. 
When we encounter the word, when we are striving to go into that rest, we want this to happen. It doesn't seem like that this would make sense. But if you think about the word strive, when we encounter the word of God, we're going to get cut. It's going to go deep inside of us. But this is what we want because it's what's inside of our thoughts. That's in the deepest part of our being. The reason why it says the whole joints and marrow going down, dividing, going, it's it's getting in every little nook and cranny is because it's there, the things that reside in us that keep us from entering into that rest, entering into that hope. And by being before the word of God, it cuts into that and destroys it. And transforms us and frees us to a place of rest. So as long as we are still here and we're not yet dead and we're not yet risen with the Lord and at peace fully with him, together with him, he is working out that, giving us that incremental rest by allowing us to be encountering his word and truth. And it exposes us. It opens up things that we don't want to be seen. Primarily, it opens them up to the Lord. It says that who nothing is hidden from his sight. We are naked and exposed. We are shown to be fully weak. We are exposed to be completely helpless. Now, remember, what is our confidence in our boasting? It is in Jesus Christ. Well, the problem is we still have our own personal confidence and our own boasting. And when we live our lives with that continual strength and boasting in ourselves, guess what? We miss out on entering into the rest. It is only when our hope and our boasting and confidence is in Christ that we can be free to enter into that rest. So we must strive by entering into a place where the word is going to expose us and make us, make us naked before the Lord. Otherwise, if we think we can stand before the Lord in our own confidence, we have to give an account. And I tell you, this day is a day that we should be saying he has risen because he was raised on a cross before he was raised from the dead. And we have a confidence in his work. It is God's work that we're resting in, and that is what we should be pointing to. Otherwise, if we are left to our own boasting and account, we have to put that before the Lord, and we will have it weighed, and we will be found wanting. I want to take a moment. Usually I come up with some kind of story here in the middle, um, but today I'm going to focus on the story that we're all focused on today over and over again. If you have your Bibles with you, I would encourage you to turn to John chapter 19. And to consider the account of Jesus and his crucifixion. And I want us to consider what is being told to us here by the writer of Hebrews. That it is when we enter into his rest, we must hold tightly to his word. We must hold tightly to his promises. We must allow the word to do its work. So that the word of God may be fulfilled for his kingdom. And the reason why we have this Confidence is not because everything is really ultimately about the work that he's doing in you and me, but it's because of the work of what the word 
did to Jesus Christ. In verse 23 of John 19, it says, When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who it, sh- whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus was there on the cross, the promise, the prophecy was being fulfilled. The word of God was having its work in Jesus Christ. It is the word of God that brings about the fulfillment of this work that brings ultimate rest. Look at these words when it is said throughout the Gospels to fulfill the scripture. It is because the word is alive and active. And here Christ was having the word making its effect. It is what he was holding on to as he was on the cross. He was accomplishing the fulfillment of that living word by taking on death. Again, later on, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. I want you to put that particular command, those particular words from Jesus on the shelf for a second. I want to continue on. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. It says, after this, Jesus, knowing all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Fulfilling the prophecies given in multiple Psalms of what Jesus would accomplish by taking on this suffering and death. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. Tete last eye. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is here that we see that this working, living word had been complete. Jesus, not only, you know, a lot of people think that, well, Jesus, he's God, so he knows things and he, and he does things differently than us. And that's true. But at that moment that he was observing even his own death, he was watching the fulfillment of God's word being laid out before him, that as he experienced his jaws being sunken and that he was thirsting, And he cries out that he thirsts. They put into this jar full of sour wine. Now, the sour wine, just as a note to you all, was not some kind of thing that was being cruel. It was actually, it was cruel and it was helpful. It was to give actual nourishment. If you recall that, if you've heard the gospel account of the crucifixion, that he denied the first offer of a wine given to him that was mixed with myrrh, and that was to put him into an intoxication so he would not experience 
the fullness of the pain. And he denied that so that he could face the fullness of the particular pain that was before him. And here, some do give that sour wine so that it would prolong their life to experience it. But it was was a helpful thing that it was a common drink. The sour wine was a common drink for common people to quench thirst. He was experiencing the most extreme thirst and dehydration. But it was most of all a fulfillment of the promise of what Jesus would accomplish what he was going to suffer, what was going to happen to him when he would thirst, and they gave him that sour wine. And it was then that he proclaimed, as he took that sour wine from a hyssop branch, which everyone there and everyone here in Hebrews and you too who are students of the word should understand that this is all about purification, that he took this on himself. He took this cup. He took on the great sacrifice himself and proclaimed the word, te te le stai. Now there's some who say, and I haven't seen it perfectly out in the word or anything, but that this was a proclamation that the priests would give as they would do the temple sacrifice and they would come out, they would say the Hebrew equivalent of this, that this is finished, it is finished, it is complete, that it was a common phrase when the work was done. That everything had been done. The work that had started in creation had been completed by this moment of Jesus Christ experiencing death. And it says that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Then continuing, since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross, the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and Saul, he was already dead. They did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. Here, the fulfillment of the scriptures literally pierce the Lord. When we hear this particular passage, a very popular passage in Hebrews about how God's living word is active and sharper than two-edged sword, and we see that it's going to pierce into us and divide us soul and spirit, joint and marrow, discerning our thoughts and intentions of our heart so that we will be brought forth naked and exposed to full repentance and acknowledgement of our weakness. This is a good way to enter into the rest of Jesus because he was naked and exposed and the fulfillment of the word was potent and powerful to the point of cutting into Jesus. And when it cut into Jesus, he was found to be pure and righteous. We are allowing the word to 
encounter us by coming here before worship so that we may be cut open and divided up so that we can exchange the areas of lack of rest, the places of strife with sin, the places with nothing but darkness and work, so we can exchange those things for the rest that Jesus experienced after he died. And is experiencing now with the life that he has risen. This is true because it was true in Jesus. That this word is powerful because it was true in him. And therefore we are able to trust his word. Just as I have gone outside and I've seen the experience of what stars or planets that I'm wanting to show the children, he has been there. And so when he comes in and he says, trust me, now follow me, we can trust him and follow him because the word of God, the life of God has been activated and is true. We can get up. We can allow ourselves to encounter this word. We can allow the word to tear us apart. Because we are longing for that rest. We are longing for what is inside of us to be put on the cross when Jesus bore our sins. It says in verse 14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. If you go back and you look at chapter 4, we see this because of this. It says in verse 1, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear. So he's like, he, he makes a proclamation and then a reaction to that proclamation. We have this proclamation of his word and then our reaction to that by us fearing. Why are we fearing? Because those who did not enter into his rest did not believe. For those who did not believe, they disobeyed. And then here we have this. So then in verse 9, it says, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. We're now applying that to us. Therefore, let us strive to enter into that rest. You see that pattern? A proclamation, A reaction. Here we have, since we have a great high priest, now going back to the cross of that sacrifice that he has accomplished on the cross, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Let Jesus be the thing that we consider and hone in on. It's not just a matter that we want the Word of God to make us better people. I've heard that being proclaimed by people before. It's like, you know, you go to church because it's good for you. (laughs) You know, it's good for you to go to church. It'll make you better people. It'll make you better workers. You know, you have that in Jordan Peterson. He, you know, he's still kind of there in the middle somewhere. We don't know where he's at, but he talks about, this is just really better for our society that we hold on to this truth. You know, I'm not really going to get into the question of whether it's reality or not. Well, here in the Word of God, in just what we read out of John, yes, it's the reality so that you will believe and that that transformation is not just for the purposes of your own comfort here on earth. It's so that the kingdom of God is proclaimed and true. This is the reality. We are to hold on to this confession that when we focus in on this, we are focusing on Jesus and what he has accomplished. We don't come to church. We don't do this on Sunday. 
We don't take a break from our work week just because it makes us good people. It's because we're striving to enter into that rest. What do we have here in Jesus Christ? Well, we, in this particular passage, we see that we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness. And when we think about the cross, now when we think about this here, we're thinking, yeah, I mean, he, he went through a lot. And I was like, no, he went through everything. <laughs> so when, when we are naked and exposed, whatever we're going through is dwarfed compared to what he's gone through. And so therefore we can look to him because he has accomplished it. Number two, well, number one was that he passed through the heavens. I skipped that part. I don't know how I missed that part. It was the first one. Let me back up, verse 14. <laughs> we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens. I can't believe I skipped that part. That's the best part, is that he's not the high priest that just went to the cross and rested in the grave. What we're here to celebrate today, that he's risen. So again, going back to that living and active, his ministry, his work, his kingdom, his priesthood is living today. And active. And therefore, when he gives out his word to you in the proclamation of his truth, it is an active work because he is actively involved at sitting at the right hand of the Father. And as he is sitting there at the right hand of the Father, he is a priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness. Because, going further in verse 15, In every respect, he has been tempted as we are. Every respect, Jesus has been tempted. I want us to go back to that shelf a moment. Again, I've pointed this out in other sermons and other conversations with you, my brothers and sisters. You know I've talked about this before. But going back, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby... He said to his mother, woman, behold, your son. And, when he, and he, then he said to the disciple, behold, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. As I studied this passage that I've read over and over again, and I've highlighted to people over and over again, it hit me very hard. That this is not, you know, John was very detailed and he would throw these things out, but everything he said had a a particular point. Here was the, follow me here. This is, I've been thinking about how I'm going to portray this to you all and I don't know how to do it, so you're going to have to really follow me. Here the word of God, the promises and prophecy of the Messiah are being worked out in Jesus. And he is giving his word to his mother and to John. In this very seemingly mundane activity of someone taking care of Jesus' mother. And it seems like it's just kind of out of the blue. Like, Like, did Jesus forget to take care of this earlier when he was teaching and he was doing other things? He could have just said, oh yeah, you know, I've been telling you that I'm getting ready to go to the cross. You need to take care of my mom. Gotta go. You know, you would think that's that's how it would be handled. But no, he purposely, in the very midst of this, and this is for us, John said it himself so that you would believe, the word of God that's being fulfilled in Christ and being acted out in Christ as he is being sacrificed, he is now proclaiming that word to John to take care of his mother. Now let's think about the reality of that. 
taking care of someone's mother, taking care of someone's children, taking care of anybody is a tremendous work, a tremendous challenge. Jennifer and I sat before one of the ladies contracted by the DSS to come and to do a home study and was talking to us about what it's been like in our experience lately, attempting to foster a child. And Jennifer, I said, it's been exposing us, exposing sins and darkness and difficulty that we did not know existed inside of us. And we think right now that we're in a time of tremendous unrest, but what's happening is that this call to reach out, to take care of this child, this call by God given to us in James 1.27 to visit the orphan in their distress, that word has interacted with us and it is tearing us apart and exposing our sin. I don't know what happened with John, but we know that handing someone over to somebody else to take care of is a difficult proposition. And Jesus gave, get this, people. It blows my mind because this is the reality in which we live. While Jesus was on the cross, he commanded to John to take on what seemingly is just mundane thing. You know, we, we think it would, some other kind of ministry would be dynamic. But the ministry to care for someone who's going to be aging and ailing soon. And some of you who have cared for people as they aged, you know, it's a tremendously hard, gut-wrenching work. Jesus tells John that, and he wants to remember it. He wants John to remember him on the cross at that moment. Every time John suffered any kind of difficulty on taking care of Jesus' mother as she finalized into her last days, he, he had to remember Jesus on the cross. He was taking all of the work. And he was basically saying, it's finished, John. I know you're going to experience this because it's going to be working itself out in you because it's finished in me. I have accomplished all of this for you so you can trust me when I tell you, take care of my mother. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. But remember what I've done. And you can hope in that. This whole time, when you don't want to keep going, when, when my command to you is going to reveal, you're going to be thinking, I was the disciple that Jesus loved. <laughs> this is so hard. Does he really love me? Yes, John. I love you. I'm on the cross. It is finished. It is accomplished. I have been tempted in every temptation that you're experiencing now. It's amazing. We don't know a lot about John after that. We know that he has first and second John and third John. We know that he had, is there third John? First and second John, third John, <laughs> first, second Peter. We have um, in Revelation, we know that that's him who wrote those things, but we don't have the same kind of narrative that we have with Peter and Paul. And we kind of think about Peter and Paul's ministry. Those are dynamic, you know, missionary work that he was doing. And we know that the church has tradition, that he did suffer persecution. But to the most part, everyone is conclusive. And even Jesus' word himself, when he was talking to Peter, he was going to die of old age. But what about the ministry of John in that time? Go read First and Second and Third John. 
What is he talking about in that? A lot of people say that he's the love author, right? He said he's the one that, that Jesus loved. But when you go to First and Second and 3 John, it's all about loving others, struggling through that love with others. John's ministry is no less dynamic. And in his, his call, his ministry call to take on his own mother, that was no small ministry because Jesus did it very vividly. You've got to remember the cross. When you take this on, when you are bearing with one another and their difficulties, loving your family, aged or young or equal in age, you've got to remember what Jesus did on the cross. You will be tempted in so many ways. You need to remember that he was tempted in every way and he did not falter. We will falter. We will give in to our selfishness. We will react. We will despise those that we are called to love. We will want to abandon the ones that we are called to love. We will react to those whom we love the most with impatience and harshness. But Jesus did not. We must hold fast to our confession that Jesus Christ accomplished this work. And therefore, let us then... Now get this. He's been saying, let us, let us, let us fear... Let us strive to enter. Let us hold fast our confession. And let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. See, he was talking about a priest. He was talking about what the priest had done. When he said it is finished, he was doing his priestly work. Now we have this call to draw near the throne of grace that we may receive mercy. And find grace. We are not going to be able to do it perfectly. But we don't have to because Jesus has without sin. We draw closer to him. We consider him more. We hold more tightly to him. We keep moving forward in obedience. We keep striving to obey his word. You know, John, he did what I'm sure he did what Jesus told him to do to take care of his mother. And he had he, he when he was writing his epistles he was probably thinking through how difficult. You may not think, who could not love Mary, the mother of Jesus? She was human. The Roman Catholics are wrong. She was a sinner. <laughs> and you can know this, the smallest of the little kids. You know, I was talking to somebody about work, at work recently about this, about how, you know, talking about elderly people. And like, you know, everybody, oh, the sweet little old person. Like, no, that's just a, a, a bitter old man. <laughs> He's been around a long time and he's been dealing with sin for a long time. And you get to know that person, I'm sure you're going to see their sin. You see a little baby, you go, oh, cute little baby. No, this is just a a child born in wrath. (laughs) There's going to be sin exposed. And and when you try to deal with that little child, your sin is going to be exposed too. Our confidence is the Lord. We hold tightly to him. I was thinking about this passage as I was driving here this morning. That Jesus is the priest that sits on the throne. As we drive up Nordyke this time of the year, and it was perfect timing that this would be the height of the redbud season. If you were here during prayer, you heard Jennifer talking about that. And it's always been perplexing to me that the redbud is not red. It's purple. The blood of Jesus Christ that he spilled 
as our great high priest is purple now in his risen state of life at the right hand of God the Father Almighty he is king he is royalty that blood is no longer on that tree because he sits higher than the cross ever was lifted at the throne of grace and mercy. You would think this would be a good place to end, but I want to end with the word of God. Matthew chapter 16. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, and on the thing, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus says to us here in Hebrews, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Jesus proclaimed the word to the disciples that he would have to die, but on the third day he would be raised. And he was. And if we're going to follow him and strive to enter his rest, we must deny ourselves, encounter the word and encounter the cross, deny our life. Let all of that be tossed aside to the cross so that we may find our life in Jesus Christ. Let us pray.